0: Uh, We come to the end of this short series from John called Simply Believe. You know what? That stand is really annoying. I'm just going to get rid of it. Here we go. Uh, And uh, after Nicodemus' conversation with Jesus, telling him that he must be born again, and then the clarion call of salvation, namely that God loves so much that he gave himself, he himself came to save sinners from darkness to light. This final section transverse us. To some water somewhere in the Judean countryside. But before we launch into the scripture, I've got a question. Is Jesus a threat to you? Is Jesus a threat to you? Now, before you answer, for many, it would be easy to say, No way. No way. Why would Jesus be a threat to me? Jesus is kind, Jesus has mercy. Jesus loves. And to all that, I say, yeah, amen. I, I believe that Jesus is kind, that Jesus has mercy, and that Jesus has grace. However, while those words are easy to say, they may not necessarily be what we functionally believe yet. I want to open with a story. Uh, I read, I've been reading some of C.S. Lewis' novels Um, They're novels, they're made-up stories, uh, but he always sets these beautiful themes throughout. In his novel, Out of the Silent Planet, Lewis tells the futuristic tale of a man, one Dr. Elwyn Ransom, a language professor at Cambridge University who had been ransomed from planet Earth and taken to the planet Malacandra, otherwise known as Mars, by two men in a spaceship. Upon arriving at this gorgeous planet of Malacandra, Ransom makes an escape from his kidnappers through a forest and he finds himself in a village with these primitive Malacandran c- creatures called Hrossa. They love to sing. They love to write poetry and they're experts with boats. Now he learns their language and begins to communicate with Huy, which is one of the Hrossa, noting how peaceful their society is, living without conflict with any of the other civilizations on the planet. While also being intrigued with their glad acceptance of death as the natural end of a life well lived. His new companion, Hioi, also gives him an introduction to their religion, which includes spirits called Eldila, who do the bidding of the head Eldil, Oyasa. Oyasa is the voice of the gods of the universe, the Old One. And Dil the Young. Now, if you were to analyze this a little, and we know that C.S. Lewis had a bent towards um, God and t- towards theology, uh, you'd know that the old one could vaguely represent God the Father. Dil the Young could vaguely represent uh, Jesus Christ, and uh, and the Oyasa could represent the Holy Spirit uh, being at work in uh, in the world. Uh, it's not exact. I'm not saying hang your theology on this. I'm just saying this is where stories are beautiful for painting a picture. After being summoned to come and speak with Oyasa, he finds himself drawn into another society called the Saorns during his journey. While sitting in a cave of an elderly and wise sawn, Ransom is required to answer many questions about earth, from geology, geography, flora, fauna, human history, politics and the arts. With an audience of sawns asking questions and giving responses, this was the tail end of one of their conversations. They were astonished at what he had to tell them of human history, of wars, of slavery, and of prostitution. It is because they have no oyasa," said one of the pupils. It is because every one of them wants to be a little oyasa himself, said Ogre, one of the sawns. They cannot help it, said the old sawns. There must be rule, yet how can creatures rule themselves? Beasts must be ruled by humans, and humans by Eldilla, and Eldilla by Malaldil. These creatures have no Eldilla. They are like one trying to lift himself up by his own hair, or one trying to see over a whole country when he is on a level with it, like a female trying trying to beget young on herself. Did you hear the response to wars and evil? Earth was in a mess because they have no God. Or because everyone wants to be a little God himself. Everyone wants to be a little God themselves. I think this is a snapshot of the next conversation in John. The thought of a deity ruling and being greater than me is threatening. It's threatening not just to me, not just to the boys in the scripture, but it's threatening to every human. It seems like it's a threat. Jesus one greater than me, ruling over me, directing my life, telling me how I can live. That's a threat to a heart that wants to do my own thing. That's a threat to a human's sovereignty. I wonder if you could open up with me to John chapter 3 and starting at verse 22. You will need your Bible this morning, so I encourage you to have it open um, and uh, and. And take a look at these scriptures. I'll be reading some uh, quite big chunks of it. Uh, so John chapter 3, verse 22. So we've just come out of uh, the, the part where Jesus is talking about light and darkness. That, uh, that God sent Jesus into the world because he loves the world so much that he gave his only son. Here we go. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. It doesn't tell anything more about that, so that just seems to be an interesting detail. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look. He's baptizing and all are going to him. Let's just pause there a minute. I wonder what the boys were thinking. I wonder what John's disciples were thinking. You got Jesus and his disciples baptizing in one part of the lake or the, the body of water and raking in the converts, it seems. They've really taken note. They're like, Jesus is going nuts over there. He's got heaps of people being baptized. John has been doing his job in preparation for this very moment when Jesus would come into the spotlight. But John's disciples are just not satisfied with how it's playing out. They're just not happy. They're they're sort of looking over and making this comparison. The comparison between John's ministry and Jesus' ministry, I think, seems to suggest that these gentlemen were envious and threatened by his apparent numerical success. made this comparison. Comparisons are usually... Not that helpful. They either wanted to try and beat him, or perhaps they even wanted to remove him so that they could get on with being the most popular baptizers. This was their ministry. Can you imagine being a businessman? Many of you are. And uh, your service, the very service that you provide, has just been threatened because another service, literally providing the same service, another business, has opened up down the road, and they're doing really well. And so you can imagine how these gents are uh, feeling, uh, they're thinking. Uh, To them, Jesus was a threat to their way of life. I reckon that if I had a show of hands today, I could guarantee that there have been times in your life where Jesus, what he says and what he can do, has seemed to be a threat to you. He leads you to love your enemies. He commands us to give up everything to follow him. He calls out the darkness of our sin and leads us into the light. He calls us to slow down, to wait patiently for him, to lean on him in suffering. All of these sometimes, if we're honest, seem like a threat. Because it's difficult to sometimes accept that he might know better. He might say things that would give us life that, We just don't like to hear or we don't want to hear. All of these can potentially threaten our personal sovereignty and our desire to be our own God. So I wonder, what is your response when Jesus seems to be a threat? I want to look into three responses today. Number one, burn the scrolls. Number two, wrangle for power. Or number three, he must increase and I must decrease. Number one, burn the scrolls. I've been hanging out in Jeremiah of late, and, uh, and Jeremiah has been, uh, he's quite a, quite a hero uh, to me. As I look over, over history, this prophet uh, was incredible. The way that he faithfully said what God wanted him to say, even in the face of suffering and heavy, heavy opposition, even in the face of ridicule, he continued to face up and say what needed to be said on behalf of God. Uh, to God's people. At this point in Jeremiah, God had been pleading with the people to turn from their wicked ways and become united with God again. Jehoiakim was the king on the throne. He was ruling as king over Judah, who are God's people. God spoke to Jeremiah, telling him to write on a scroll all of the words that he had spoken regarding Israel, Judah, and all the other nations. Now the hope is that when they heard the warnings of all the disaster that God was going to inflict on them, each of them would turn from his wicked way and God would forgive him. That's recorded. Jeremiah called Barak, who's a scribe, and Barak recorded every word. He he wrote down every word that Jeremiah said. Now Jeremiah had been restricted under COVID-19 isolation laws, not really, from entering the temple he sent Jeremiah, uh, He sent Barak instead to share it with the people. So Jeremiah was in isolation. He'd been restricted from going to the temple and speaking the words of God. And so he sent Barak instead. The people heard the words. They knew that the authorities had to hear about it because these were serious words. God was going to bring judgment and punishment on the people unless they turned. Barak went to the governing officials who heard it. And finally, it came to the ears of the king, Jehoiakim. If you've got your Bible there, open it up to Jeremiah chapter 36 and we're going to read from verse 19. Jeremiah chapter 36 and verse 19. Can you imagine? You're the king of Israel and you're hearing that it's not good news at the moment. You've uh, led your people to rebel against God to forget God, to, to, uh, to not enjoy and appreciate being close to God. And uh, you now hear these words that it's not going to go well. Uh, so Jeremiah 36 verse 19, here's what it says. Then the officials said to Baruch, Go and hide, you and Jeremiah, and let no one know where you are. Warning, it's not going to go well, mate. <laughs> Jehoiakim is not going to be very happy. Verse 20. So they went into the court to the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. Then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama the secretary. And Jehudi read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the firepot before him. I love how scripture just adds in that poetic detail. It's so cool. Sitting in the winter house. This is like the, the, uh, the house in the hills. I don't know. And there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehudi read three or four columns, didn't even get all the way through, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Even when Elnathan and Deliah and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. Just burn the scroll. That way, God can't keep telling me I need to change. Just burn the scroll. Maybe then God will leave me alone to run this place the way I want. He was brazen about it. Now, I don't think we would be go to the lengths of taking our Bible and burning it. Some would. I'm just not sure it's at the project. <laughs> Yet, I wonder if in a way we do end up burning the scrolls. When God's truth cuts through our life and when God's truth cuts through what we want to do or where we think we want to go, is it possible that we burn the scrolls? that we go, I just don't really like that. It's just not the place I wanted to go. If you've done this, you're in good company. I don't think you're alone. I'll put my hand up with you and say that this has been something I've done in the past. I'd rather get it done on my own than wait for God to lead me through it. And so in a sense, I burn the scrolls. I'd rather not hear what God has to say. St. Augustine lived around the late 3rd century into the 4th century AD. And he had insight into this temptation as he was considering whether submitting to Christ met his own eloquent knowledge and wisdom or his standard of living or not. Here's what he said in the Confessions. It's in book number three and it's in number five. It's up on the screen. So I made up my mind to examine the Holy Scriptures and see what kind of books they were. I discovered something that was at once beyond the understanding of the proud and hidden from the eyes of children. Its gate was humble, but the heights it reached were sublime. It was enfolded in mysteries, and I was not the kind of man to enter into it or bow my head to follow where it led. But these were not the feeling I had when I first read the Scriptures. To me, they seemed quite unworthy of comparison with the stately prose of Cicero a uh, profound writer in his day and uh, a logical writer a good writer uh, yet nothing in comparison to God's word because i had too much conceit to accept their simplicity and not enough insight to penetrate their depths it is surely true that as the child grows these books grow with him but i was too proud to call myself a child i was inflated with self-esteem which made me think which made me think myself a great man to him Burn the scrolls. Augustine, burn the scrolls. I didn't want to listen to that. I was too great a man to be able to accept the simplicity and the depth and the beauty of Scripture. Number two, wrangle for control. God's not taking me where I want, He's not acting within my time frame I want, so I have to do something about it. To illustrate this, I want to go back a little further. Uh, This goes back into 1 Kings. So it's a couple of thousand years ago, a few more thousand years ago. Uh, We go back into the period of Israel's history where David is king. If you've got your scripture, I'd love for you to open at 1 Kings chapter 1. Now at this point in history, it had been foretold many years prior that God had chosen Solomon, David's son, to be the next king over Israel. So you know David and Goliath, David beats Goliath, David becomes king over Israel, he has lots of sons, and Solomon, God had promised, would be the next son to take the throne. Uh, It was in that order. Solomon was not the only son of David, as I mentioned, in fact he had many sons. His older son, Adonijah, momentarily becomes a prominent character in 1 Kings chapter 1. He longed to be king instead of Solomon. David was getting on in years. Scripture says he was so old that he remained in bed where he was cold so that not even blankets would keep his legs warm. You know what happens as as the elderly get old? I mean, this is getting on. David is really getting on in years. Uh, And so uh, Scripture says he was so old that he remained in bed. Given that nothing was happening with the succession plans, Adonijah thought, all right, I'll make it happen. (laughs) I'm not happy. I mean, my father's getting on in years. I'm just going to get this thing done on my own. Let's read about it. 1 Kings chapter 1. Here we go. Adonijah sets himself up as king. This is out of verse 5. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, "'I will be king.' And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, "'Why have you done thus and so?' He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab the son of Zeruiah and with Abiathar the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet and Shimei and Rai and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. He's starting to see this. Adonijah wants something, but he leaves the right people out so he can get it. He's, he's pretty well planned. He's got this thing worked out. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent's stone, which is beside Enrogel, and he invited all his brothers, the king's son, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah or the mighty men or Solomon his brother. If he had invited them, they would tell him the truth. He didn't want to hear the truth. If he had invited them, maybe he would have to listen to God from Nathan the prophet. He didn't want to hear the truth from Nathan the prophet. So he just left them out. They might need to uh, read a book called Uninvited or something. I don't know. Uh, Nathan and Bathsheba come before David. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king and David our Lord does not know it? Now therefore come. Let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then, while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words." So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king. The story continues on. She shares this information with King David. King David can do nothing except respond. So David responds. Nathan had also come in, and uh, and David responds. Jump down to verse 25. For he was gone down this day, he's telling about how Adonijah has gone and had his own uh, little ceremony making himself king. He's gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, and cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they were eating and drinking before him and saying, Long live King Adonijah. There's a party going on. <laughs> he's king. He's got all these people around him. He's loving it. He's thinking, man, this is good. I'm setting sail here. I'm going to be the next king of Israel. Can you imagine the party going on down the road while King David is sitting in his, uh, in his palace and, uh, and getting old and aged, having no knowledge about it? But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been brought about my- by my lord the king and have you not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him i want you to hang in here god's word is precious hang with me then king david answered call bathsheba to me so she came into the king's presence and stood before the king and the king swore bathsheba was his wife solomon was bathsheba and david's son and the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my lord, the king David, live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. Things are about to change, right? Solomon, the true king, is about to become king. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Beniah the son of Jehoiada answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites, went down with, uh, and brought, had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! Long live King Solomon! It's an uproar. There's a lot of people here. They're all shouting out, Long live King Solomon. Remember, just down the road, there's another party going on. What are they yelling out? Long live Adonijah! Long live Adonijah! Seems to be a bit of a contest here. Who will actually end up? Being king. Well, keep your imaginations alive. Let's keep reading. Adonijah, uh, hold on, and all the people went up after him, verse 40, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. (laughs) This is big, it's huge. There's a triumphal procession going down the street, and the noise was so loud that the earth was split. Metaphor. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. Uh oh, <laughs> caught. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, What does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came. And Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a worthy man and bring good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No. For our Lord King David has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, part of the mighty men of David. And the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And they had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. And they have gone up from there rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you've heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servant came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne. This day, my own eyes seeing it. He's still with me? Hang in. This is good. This is God's word. Something precious about it. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose and each went his own way. <laughs> uh, that's not how you want the end of the party to go. <laughs> uh, they realized they'd gone to the wrong party, it was the wrong king. Keep going. Uh, and Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon. For behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Wrangling for control. Wrangling for control. Not only are we tempted to burn the scrolls, but we're tempted to wrangle for control. Adonijah wrangles the plans and ultimately God to set things up according to his plans. It was looking good there for a moment, but he fails and he's left in fear and isolation. When we wrangle for control, it leaves us in fear and isolation because who's doing the work? Who's in charge? Who's leading? It's me. So I've got to get myself out of whatever trouble I'm in. I've got to save myself. I've got to rescue myself because I was the one who took myself and led my life the way I wanted it to go. It's a bit different for Solomon though. Solomon received the crown that God had already planned for him to receive. Not sure about you, but I've certainly found myself in this position before. I haven't been satisfied that God is acting quickly enough or in a way that I wanted, so I wrangled for power and tried to direct my life in the way I thought it should go. The journey, personally, was long, it was lonely, and it was arduous. I wonder if you've been there. But here's the wonderful news. There's hope. Because it's not an isolated condition. (laughs) Burning the scrolls, Wrangling for power is not an isolated condition. It's a very central part of the human condition. And it's why we need another rescuer, not ourselves. Here's the third response. He must increase and I must decrease. John's response to the disciples is one of gentle rebuke and admiration and praise of the great Jesus Christ. Let's pause here and go back to John 3 for a moment. If you've got your Bible there or your phone, flick back to John 3. I want to finish uh, with what John had actually said. So we've been through a couple of stories. Jeremiah and Jehoiakim burning the scrolls. Adonijah grasping for power and making things go the way he wanted. Now we're back here in John. And, uh, and the disciples have just questioned John as they compared their ministry to Jesus' ministry. Verse 27, John 3, verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. This sounds different, doesn't it? John's response to the threat of Jesus sounds very, very different. He must increase, John said, but I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Can you hear the the limitedness of someone belonging to the earth and living on the earth? Can you hear the grandeur? of the one who is from above, who is above all. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the word of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into the Son's hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the mantra of the life of a believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus is not a threat. He's truly a joy. When Jesus becomes the Lord, the master of a human's life, he always means to give them more life, not to suck life from them. He always means to give them more life, not to suck life from them. It's just not the life that they always wanted, perhaps. It's just not the life that they'd always expected. When a human gladly gives in to Jesus as their master, he means to lead them out of darkness and into light. Now, I want you to be honest. I ask you to be honest with me for a moment. If we're being honest, there's times where what Jesus says And when he says, come out of darkness and into light, it's threatening. It seems like it's really scary. When the darkest things in you get exposed, there's a little bit of trepidation. But if it gets exposed for your shame and that's it, that's bad news. But if it gets exposed so that you would have more life, so that you would be restored in the hands of of one who is above all, in the hands of one who is over all and in all and through all, well, that's a different story. You're in good hands. You're in good hands. Those feelings, though, the feelings of burning the scrolls, the feelings of wrangling for power and sovereignty, those feelings can't be trusted. Christ Can be trusted, God's word can be trusted. John offers his followers a different narrative. John says, "I'm not the greatest; Christ is. It was always meant to be this way." John said, "My living in this world was only ever to prepare the way for Christ to become greater, and now this joy of mine is complete. The only way for a human's pride to decrease." And the greatest one, Jesus himself, to increase, the only way is by believing that he indeed is greater. And I am not greater. That he must increase and I must decrease. To confess and admire, Jesus Christ is truly as great as he is. John makes it clear to his boys that Jesus comes from above and is above all, that we humans are from the earth and can only speak in an earthly way. We are limited and he is unlimited. He is above all. Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard for eternity past and into eternity future from his time with God the Father. There are those who refuse his testimony to their own peril and there are those who receive his testimony to their own joy. To receive his testimony means to slow down, And to let the truth of God settle into the darkest places in your heart and in mine. It's to slow down and to wait upon God as we make decisions day by day. That's how we truly receive his testimony. We heard in James how tempting it is to hear the word of God and not let it sink in and settle. But instead just to go home and forget what we look like. What John invites us to is accepting with great joy that Christ is greater and that what he says and the life he wants to give to us is far greater. It means honestly bringing yourself before God and his word and allowing him to shape you and direct your steps. He's given us a community of people called the church to be able to speak the truth to each other so that we continue to be shaped by it. But none of this can happen unless we're willing to bring the unseen parts of ourselves into the light. I want to tell two quick stories before I close. Uh, A few weeks ago, I was driving along Murphy's Creek Road and uh, I saw this guy with the hood up. Uh, It was an old falcon ute. Um, I'll leave the comments to you (laughs) about a falcon ute. Uh, But uh, the the hood was up and he was standing under the, the hood of the falcon looking in, just wondering what was going on. Uh, I drove past and uh, I got up the road and I thought, oh, I've got time. Jesus says to love your neighbor. Uh, and so I turned around and I went back and, uh, and I went back and here I uh, pulled up, went down the window and uh, this fellow comes over to the window. This guy has a mullet, his teeth are crooked. Uh, he's, uh, he's enjoying life. Uh, it really looked like he was enjoying life, except he'd hit this trouble I said, mate, mate, what's up? And straight out, he just goes, "Oh man, I'm lost. <laughs> oh man, I'm lost." And it struck me right there at that moment. The Aussie way is to go, "Ah, oh, no, no, everything's okay. I'm alright. I've got to sort it. Sorted. I'll work it out." That's the probably Aussie response. But he just flat out comes out to me and goes, "Man, I'm lost. I'm coming from North and I want to get to South, and he had no idea about the borders. Uh, he was lost." He was wanted to go through Warwick, and he was coming down Murphy's Creek. Uh, That's the long way. You usually go through town. He was lost, but he was happy to admit it. He was happy to admit that he was lost, that he needed help. So I gave him a bit of help and helped him on the way. It would be a good problem for us to have as a church if we were a people who were willing to ask the right questions. I'm lost. Can you help me? I'm not doing well. Can you help me to come to God with these questions? I'm about to make a big decision in my life. Can you help me? I just ballsed up a big decision in my life. Can you help me? (laughs) We all make good decisions and bad decisions. I can see this habitual sin in my life. I need help to break it. Can you help me? Can you show me in the Bible what it says? We've got a good pastoral team who love to lead people to Jesus and who are really good at it. We've got good community group leaders who love to lead people to Jesus and who are really good at it. You could burn the scrolls and not want to listen. You could wrangle for power and get it done on your own. Or you could ask some good questions. Can you help me? I hear God's word this morning in the sermon. I just can't see how it applies in my life. Can you help me? Uh, Last story. John finishes his communique with his disciples by making this good news really clear. The Father loves the Son and all things have been given into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's a real sense in which John wants the disciples not to get on with their life, doing things the way they always did. There's a real sense in which the good news wants us to shift directions so that we don't just keep doing the same things over and over and over again. But we don't want to go ahead without God. Over the holidays, uh, my two oldest daughters had the opportunity to get on a plane with their grandmother and head to Cairns. Um, this was their first time on a plane. It was a sweet holiday with Grandma, and, uh, and she took them to all the places to see in Cairns. They ate out every meal. Uh, it, was, it was a beautiful holiday for them. We drove them down to the airport, and, uh, and the two youngest were with me, with us in the car. So we dropped them off at the airport, and as we're leaving the airport, um, one of them starts to get tears in his eyes. And he's like, oh, that was really hard. I didn't like saying goodbye. <laughs> that, that was really tough. And uh, and, and they, they continued on. We walked and chatted about it. Uh, then they got in the car and the other one just started tearing up as well. And, um, and the, they're both just crying. But I'm not talking crying. I'm not just like... <laughs> I'm talking, uh, uh, this weeping, it was, it was this weeping because they could see two days ahead and go, my sisters aren't going to be there. That, that's terrible. There's something missing. They're, they're, they're gone and they're not going to be here for two days. That's terrible. It was a beautiful moment. Uh, That's a good longing to have. I would be sad if they sat in the car and went, good, they're gone. Now we can do some stuff together. That would be sad for me as a dad. But do you see? It would be terrible to face tomorrow without God. I wonder if that's a longing in your heart. I want you to come with me today. Believe in Jesus today set your longings on him and on the things above and not just on your earthly things the things that your earthly mind can handle i want to finish with a prayer from saint augustine this is in uh his confessions book number one he says this as he's wrestling with how god would save him you might like to close your eyes and pray or it's up on the screen who will grant me to rest content in you To whom shall I turn for the gift of your coming into my heart and filling it to the brim, so that I may forget all the wrong I've done and embrace you alone, my only source of good? Why do you mean so much to me? Help me to find words to explain. Why do I mean so much to you, that you should command me to love you? And if I fail to love you, you are angry and threaten me with great sorrow, as if not to love you were not sorrow enough In itself, have pity on me and help me, O Lord my God. Tell me why you mean so much to me. Whisper in my heart, I'm here to save you. Speak so that I may hear your words. My heart has ears ready to listen to you, Lord. Open them wide and whisper in my heart, I'm here to save you. I shall hear your voice and make haste to clasp you to myself. Do not hide your face from away from me, God, for I would gladly meet my death to see it, since not to see it would be death indeed. I'll ask the band to come up as we uh, come before God. I'd love you to spend a quiet moment before God right now. Part of why I read such a huge chunk of scripture was because scripture is just so precious. I don't want for you to burn the scrolls. I don't want for you to sense this desperate hankering to wrangle for power in opposition to God. What I hope for you and what I want for you is to be liberated, to trust in the one and only Christ who can save you, who can save you from the mess of decisions, who can save you from the mess of wrangling your own life.